This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Morning. Hey, some, a few of you, I was kind of surprised, but I don't know if you know this. A few of you have birthdays today, this morning. So if it's your birthday today, happy birthday. You guys want to sing? No. You do? Well, Ste- well, you know, there's other people too. We love Stephanie. We already sent her a birthday video singing happy birthday to her. Yeah. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand so we can get you one. You can follow along with us in Matthew chapter 9. We took a break from our series through Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. The end of last year in December, we took a break for our holiday services. We had a series about Christmas, and then the beginning of the year, we had uh, a vision casting and then a, a series on discipleship, which the Lord has put on our heart this year to really focus as a church on discipleship. So we finished that up. Um, You had Sean a couple weeks ago, Pastor Sean, share with you. And then last week we covered the last part of the discipleship series, which was international discipleship with the focus being on missions since we had just got back from our mission trip. With that being said, uh, we are going to go back to Austria, Croatia next January to do the same thing or close to the same thing as we did this year, which is doing an English school English classes in Zagreb at the church that we're a part of that's being planted there, and then also going up to Austria, Milstadt, Austria, at the Calvary Chapel Conference Center to serve at the Pastors and Conference, the Pastors and Leaders Conference, where we had 130 pastors and leaders from all over Europe, which if you talk to the people who are on the team, it was an incredible time. So just for the sake of planning, so that you can mark that in your calendars, we do have a sign-up sheet at the information station if you're interested next year and going on that trip with us, but also we have a few spots left for our Israel trip, which is May 31st through June 12th. So if you'd like to go to Israel, either talk to me or sign up at the information station for that. I know that that is also going to be a great blessing. So we're picking up now with our Forsaken Kingdom series. And because it was so long ago, about a month and a half or so ago, I kind of want to refresh your guys' memories of what this series is all about. Do you remember Forsaken series? Here we have this guy, Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus, who was a, what was, what was his profession? He was a, don't whisper, come on, shout it out. He was a tax collector working for who? The Romans, and he had kind of given up on his country, on his people, because things were corrupt and going in a wrong direction. So he identified with the Romans, became a tax collector to receive an income for him and his family. And and who did the Jews hate? They hated tax collectors. And what did they say Jesus, what was one of their biggest problems with Jesus is that he identified with, that he sat and he ate with sinners and tax collectors. So you can get the kind of idea of, of, of how they viewed or how they perceived these tax collectors. And Matthew, forsaking his kingdom, Israel, to be identified with Rome as a tax collector, then meets this guy named, anybody remember? 
Jesus. <laughs> I give up. Just wrap it up. Jesus. He meets Jesus and he's introduced to the kingdom of God. He's, he's introduced to the kingdom that was intended for mankind to be a part of. And then he forsakes his Roman association, even though it was his, his job, his position, his livelihood. He forsakes that to identify with the kingdom of God. And I said this is the first service. I want to say it to you guys as well. I don't think like I'm pretty smart, but I'm not super smart. Not one. Thank you. I'm not even pretty smart, I don't think, anyway. I don't think, like, when I think ahead for things, like, I think, like, you know, what's the next book we're going to do? Matthew, and I'm reading through Matthew, and I'm charting it out, and I'm, I'm breaking it up to the different Bible studies, and, and really, you see this theme. This is what we've been talking about. Um, we see this theme of this, the kingdom, the kingdom theme, and, and how it fits for us. And, and again, on, on a personal level, it's, it's us being part of what God's purpose and plan is for our lives in this world, uh, apart from us sitting on the throne, our own throne, and being in control of our lives because we just don't really know what the best things are in store for us. We don't understand really what, what is best for us, but God does understand what's best for us. And the difference would be the world seeking to establish their own kingdom, individuals seeking to establish what they want out of life, what they want life to look like. But but here's, don't, don't lose what I was, what I was trying to communicate. I, I don't really think too far ahead, and I, and I kind of forgot, which I don't know if I forgot, but I didn't really, I didn't intentionally allow it to coincide with this whole craziness that is the 2020 election period coming up. I don't know if you guys have experienced how people are losing their minds and everything's going crazy because of political stuff and how well it fits with what we're going through in the Bible and taking a view, taking a look of what God's heart is for bringing his kingdom and his righteousness on earth. And when we seek God, one of the, one of the, the, the most precious parts of the Lord's prayer to me is, is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like your kingdom is better than what any other kingdom on this planet has to offer. Your kingdom is above and beyond. And I think that we can kind of get swept up in this emotional tide pool of political craziness and we have to be grounded as believers as Christians we have to be grounded in his word and expectant and looking forward to and hoping and asking for on a daily basis his kingdom come his will be done on earth as it is in heaven because the political stuff is never going to go away do you guys like history do you like, you know, one of my favorite things to read, I didn't used to be crazy about reading, but one of the things I really love to read is biographies and even autobiographies. Have you ever read stuff from people who were dead like hundreds of years ago? I want to encourage you, go pick up some books, you know, from Charles Spurgeon or from, um, you know, uh, Leonard Ravenhill or, or, or some of these other, just some historical guys, even if, if you like the political stuff, go, to go read some of that. And you'll be shocked 
to find out that they're dealing with the same things back then that we're dealing with today. It's this, it's this dichotomy of the spiritual versus the carnal. The political on the earth versus the, the will of God for eternity, the eternal perspectives and temporal. And, and we can, this is really important, guys, listen. For some reason, it's easy for us to get caught up in the emotional fervor of what's happening on the political scene right now. It's easy for us to like have things that we want to talk about and get mad about and get passionate about. But if we as disciples are more about helping people understand God's purpose in his kingdom coming, and our identity is more wrapped up in us being citizens, as the Bible says, citizens of heaven, citizens of the heavenly kingdom, then those other things won't affect us so much. I was introduced to a pastor, and I thought about not sharing this with you, but it's the truth, you know? I was introduced to a pastor recently, and I like to Facebook stalk people. You guys, anybody else like to? I just getting to know you a little bit, you know, seeing what, how, what kind of a freak you are. So I'll go on your Facebook, and, and out of the abundance of the heart, the, the, the finger posteth. Is that what the word says? No. I'm just kidding. So I go and I'm checking this, this guy out that I was just introduced to. And almost oh, every single thing that he posted, almost everything that he posts is political. And I'm just thinking, you know, when we, when we allow ourselves to be so caught up in a political representation of who we are or even American Christianity, we, you know what we do? We eliminate an audience to truly share the gospel with. All the people that they're communicating to are people that have the same position as them. Nobody's thinking like, I'm opposed to their ideology, so I'm going to go read through all of... Nobody does that. They just get upset. They sink their heels in deeper. And if we want an opportunity to love people, if we want an opportunity to share the hope of God and the kingdom of God as communicated through us to us through the scriptures, we have to be willing to set aside our hobby horses and our pet projects or the things that we think really matter when in the grand scheme of things, God so loves the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever. So we want to make sure that we're not eliminating the audience that God has really put before us to share who he is, not about what some kingdom on this earth represents. Does that make sense? I know that that can kind of be offensive, but I'm okay with it. Just let's identify with with the good things that he has for the earth through his son, reconciliation to him. And is it, is it, is it, should we not talk about political issues? No, I mean, we can, we need to be diligent and understand that there's influences that come through, you know, through the world into our lives. But we just need to make sure when those influences come that we are more about representing the kingdom of God as citizens of the kingdom of God rather than what our predisposed political opinions are. Amen?
So, I mean, I guess it's all kind of timely. That's what I'm trying to communicate. Way too long to try to communicate that to you, but it's kind of timely. We're going to be finishing. I shoot for finishing the Gospel of Matthew, the Forsaking Kingdom series, on December 1st. Do you catch my drift? I don't know. We'll finish it whenever we finish it. Let's, uh, let's jump into Matthew chapter 9. Look at these. The, the title of today's me- uh, message is Five Citizens, these people who were citizens of an earthly kingdom and through faith in Jesus Christ, they started to maybe not put directly, but indirectly start to identify more with the kingdom of God. And we'll see how that affected their lives. That's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we do, let's go ahead and, and, and lift this time up to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're eager to hear what you have to speak to us through your word today. We thank you, God, that that you do speak, that we could be confident in hearing from you, that you're going to speak to us today. And God, we we just want to be in a place of humility. Just that, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we have the answer. That through your son that we can know who you are. And we can take that and give it to people who are hurting, people who are dying, people who are suffering, as we see in your word today. God, thank you for the opportunity and the blessed people that you've given us on the worship team to worship you, to lead us in worship, and that we can offer you the fruit of our lips. Thank you, God, that, that we can study your word, we can apply your word, and, and we want that to be an act of worship as well and as well as our tithes and offerings that we give to you, Lord. Those are, those are for you, and we don't want it to be in compulsion, but, but an act of worship to honor you for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, Matthew chapter nine, we're introduced to our first character. Starting in verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. So here we have the first character who is a what? What's his position? He's a ruler. And one of the things that we're going to notice about these five different people is we have five dramatically different people in different layers of society. It's not just all one demographic, as we would say. It's all different kinds of people in all kinds of different positions. And this guy's a ruler. He has a reputation. And he goes to Jesus. Why? Because his daughter is dying, is ill. Is she in trouble? She's dead. My daughter has died. And what's the first thing that he does when he comes up to Jesus? If you saw in the text, can you see? What's the first thing that he did? It says that he worshiped him. This is the ruler recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, the the prophesied one of Israel. If Jesus was not the Messiah, if he was not the Son of God, then he would say to this guy, do not worship me. In fact, in every other place in the Bible, 
every other place whenever anybody bows down to worship anybody or anything, the, the correct response always is, don't worship me, get up. Peter, an angel, they all say, don't worship me. Worship is alone for God. He is, he is great. He is the one that's working for you, not me. I'm just a messenger. I just have something to tell you. In every other situation, the instruction is get up, worship God. I am not God. But Jesus does not prohibit this man from worship because it's a recognition of Jesus' deity being the Son of God and the Messiah coming to fulfill or to begin the kingdom of heaven that, that we've seen up until now, God is, is bringing in, ushering in on the earth. So we see he comes, he worships, and he says, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. The next thing that we can take note of is that um, his daughter is dead. And sometimes for us, we think that we have like a, a scale. And as, and as soon as that scale's full, or as, as soon as everything that we expect or think should or could happen is, is over, then all hope is lost. You, you, you feel what I'm saying? It's like David. You remember David in the Old Testament where he's grieving for this child that he had with Bathsheba and, and he wants the child to live and he's mourning, he, he's, he's, he's weeping. But as soon as he hears the child dies, what does he do? He gets up, he takes a shower, he washes his face and he goes out and his servants are like, what's wrong with you? You're weird. And he said, well, when the kid was sick, all I could do is seek God and to, and to see something happen. But after, after the child died, then it was, it was a done deal. And there's some things in our lives that once it's dead, it's over. Let's move on from it or try to move on from it. But this man had a greater hope, didn't he? Because he could have said, my daughter's dead, it's too late. But instead, what did he say? He said, my daughter is dead, but Jesus. There are certain things in your lives that you think have died and are beyond repair, beyond life. But let me tell you, I'll be the first one to tell you that the Bible clearly teaches us that our God is the God of the resurrection. And things that we thought that, that brought death, that, that continue to bring death. Not only is God able, but he's fully able and many times, if not every time, willing to bring resurrection from death. It, it is the heart of the gospel. Jesus knew that. And his confidence, this rich man's confidence, says to Jesus, my daughter's dead, but if you come, lay your hand on her, then she will live. And if we came to God with the same kinds of words, how many things in our lives would we experience more of an abundant life through rather than the pain and suffering of death. There can be a release from, instead of a dwelling in, that cause us so much pain and heartache. Here's the first thing that happens. 
Jesus gets up and goes to follow him. And so did his disciples. There's a response on Jesus' part. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. So here they're on their way to go to the dead girl, the deceased young lady. And on the way, there's this lady there who, if you've noticed, you will notice as we go through these five people, that there's not a lot of detail given to us by Matthew. And some pastors and teachers will go to the other gospels and they'll reference for you and give you all the details. I don't ever do that. And I hardly ever, if ever, bring it up to you guys to tell you that. But I'm telling you this morning, I don't ever do that. And this is why, because context is so important for us. If Matthew wanted to communicate the details about these things, then he would communicate the details. But he's giving these little quick clips of these stories just to emphasize or to make a point about something. So we do know that this woman has been suffering with the flow of blood for 12 plus years. And and we do know by other accounts that it's because um, she's been seeking out healing and she wants to get healed and everything that she's tried, that she's probably a wealthy woman and everything she's tried has failed. But now there's this guy who she can go to to receive healing from and his name is Jesus. But here's the problem. According to Old Testament law, with the flow of blood, this woman would be considered, Bible scholars, you guys are good, unclean, which means what? She cannot come into the community. She cannot be around other people. She cannot touch other people. And here we have a throng. We have a crowd of people pressing up against Jesus, following Jesus, and she should not be there. She should be at home and she should get one of her servants or one of her friends to say, hey, go get Jesus and bring him back here because I shouldn't be out there. But yet here she is. And what does she say? She says, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But according to the law, she was not allowed to touch not only Jesus, but she wasn't allowed to touch anybody. And, and this hem of the garment is if I could only touch the smallest, most distant part of anything that's touching him. And what do we see in her? We see this faith in Jesus, just like the ruler had faith in Jesus for his dead daughter, that as close as I can get to him, even if I can touch just the hem, the furthest thing away from him, I know I'm not supposed to touch him, but if I can get so close just to touch a little bit of his hem, then I'll be healed. And she did it. What happens? Verse 22. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Of all the things Jesus could have said. There's no way he felt that. Could you imagine? You're the woman. You're unclean. You're sneaking through the crowd. Don't touch me. I'm unclean. Don't tell anybody. And I just got to get close enough to Jesus to just touch him a little bit. And as soon as she just touches the furthest thing that's connected but disconnected from him, as soon as she touches it, Jesus turns around and looks at her. What would you think? You're like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Woman, I'm on my way to raise someone from the dead and you've been unclean for 12 years and you sneak up and touch me. She's defiled you all. No. 
not Jesus. We're going to see further in the story Jesus' response to the people. But Jesus' response is he connects with her where she's at, and he says, you have been made well. And it's by your faith, recognizing who I am, all of the things that she spent, all of the time that she, that she sought seeking help, and here comes the man that represents the kingdom of God to usher in healing, not for one woman, but for a people, for the multitude to take away that which was corrupt, the kingdoms of this earth that are built up, and for some reason, historically, we see over and over again, tend to become corrupt over time in exchange for the kingdom of God that has no corruption in it. It's beautiful and whole and pure, and God's intentions for his citizens is wholeness. You know, people don't like the word holy because there's this connotation of better than others. That's not what holy means. Holy means separate. Holy also can mean, I'm just saying in our definition for this morning, what we're talking about, wholeness. Because I don't know if you would agree with me, but I, I rub shoulders with the people in this world and with many of you, and there's just this, 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 this desire for wholeness. And what we see over and over again in the Word is God's desire to bring wholeness to His people. And how often is that not received because there's a lack of faith or a, a separation from a wanting my own kingdom, my own things that I've set up instead of in an unclean state seeking the one who has the answers. Let's take into consideration, too, that Jesus is on his way going to somewhere, and the ruler doesn't say anything to the woman that we know of in our account. He's not like, hey, listen, woman, Jesus is talking to me. I, my daughter's dead. Don't you know? Have you ever had people say that to you? It's just really funny. I read this, twi this tweet the other day on, on Twitter, and this, this guy my age was like talking about how, you know, isn't it funny how, like, back when I was in school, you know, we'd have a couple feet of snow and we'd still have to go to snow. This guy lives in Colorado, and he's like, now it just it's, it flurries and there's, a, there's, a, there's just a little bit of snow on the ground, and it's a snow day. It would have been really great to know that, you know, if I was back when I was in school, if I had snow days, and then one of my buddies responded, oh, hashtag okay boomer. And he's like, if you know, you know, okay. And he's like, our age. It's like somehow it happens to where we get to the point in our lives where we're comparing ourselves to other people and their experiences and what they go through and their healing process and how we healed. And it's not better. It might be just different, but God's intention for all of his people is wholeness. And they were on their way. Imagine if Jesus did say to her, hey, I've got business that I'm attending to. I got to go visit this dead girl. Do you think the dead girl's problems are a little bit more than your flow of blood, lady? Really? I mean, no, he doesn't. 
He stops and he addresses her issue. He engages with her. Nobody has anything to say. And, and I, want, I want you to, to know this this morning. Take a note. And I have Grant throw it up on the bottom of this slide right here. Jesus' urgency is not the same as your urgency. It never is. In every single one of your circumstances or situations, God's urgency for your situation is, is never as great as you make it out to be. Like, Jesus, I need this done yesterday. Now, couldn't, this, couldn't the ruler say that? Jesus, my daughter is dead. We could have used your help yesterday. But there's this sense of urgency that even though he's going to minister to a need, he can stop and address the need of somebody else. But when we're going through that in that process, we're thinking, okay, maybe God is helping me through this to address things and we're getting to the point of healing and restoration. But I don't want, any, want anybody to interrupt that process. What if he brings those people along to be part of that process? What if he brings people around you to see the process that you're going through so that they can receive healing as well? So that they can be ministered to as well? Because God's urgency is always spot on time. He's not worried about tomorrow. He's not worried about today. He's not worried that your kid's been dead for a day already. I know that that sounds mean and callous, but he's going to raise her from the dead, so it's okay for me to say stuff like that. His urgency is connected to his sovereignty. His sovereignty is connected to his calling, the kingdom of God, representing that God is going to take care of his people. That he's, he wants to bring wholeness and that it's going to be on his timeline. If God went by your timeline, what would that look like? What would it mean? It would mean you're in charge. You call the shots. And if I had a dollar for every single person that I've talked to in the past that thought that God needed to hear what I have to say. And God says, hey, I'm outside of the time-space continuum. I can see things from a perspective, not only that you can't see, but you can never see. Trust me. I'm going to allow you to be part of the process for others as well. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But then the crowd was put outside. When the crowd was put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. Jesus continues on the mission he goes to the house, and there's these people, rightly so, right? Wailing and weeping for this woman, What's for this girl. What's not in the text on a cultural level is at this time, you, some of you may know, at this day and age, at this time, people were, would hire professional mourners. Ever um, been to a, a memorial service or a funeral that somebody who did the eulogy had nothing but bad things to say about people? No, they, they always have the best things to say. I, I was at a, a funeral for this guy who was a pimp and a drug dealer. He got stabbed in a drug deal and died. And you'd think the people that got up and talked to him, he was, he was getting sainthood. Like this guy literally was 
not a nice person. But the people who had things to say about him, it's like there's this facade, this like, let's not talk about the bad. That is a good opportunity for us in those situations to, to meditate or to, to contemplate the depravity of all mankind and how we all fall short of the glory of God. That's a good time to consider that. But there's these people that would be hired. And if you were a poor person, if you were a husband that just lost their wife and you didn't have any other family and you were a dirt poor single old man, the minimum requirement for hiring mourners would be two flute players and, and a whaler. And, and that's what you would, you know, culturally, that's what you would do. You would hire them and they would come and they would scream and wail. And as they're screaming and wailing and Jesus is coming up, and again, this is a young girl of a ruler, a young daughter of a ruler, so they did have some reputation. He says, don't, you know, knock it off. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And they start to mock him. And then he goes in and he takes her by the hand and he raises that which was dead to life. I know this is a sensitive subject, I understand, and I want to be careful, I want to be delicate, because I do want to give respect to those who have lost their lives, but it was something beautiful that I saw happen with this whole thing that's been going on with, I'm sure you've heard Kobe Bryant and his daughter, his 13-year-old daughter, I believe, that, that passed away in the helicopter crash in California. And one of the things that really... That, that I appreciated about that whole process that everybody's been going through. He was a very well-known man, very famous man. One of the things that I really appreciate about the way that, that many people around the world have been mourning is there's just as much recognition given to his daughter as given to him. This innocent girl, his daughter that was with him. And, and I think that that's, that's healthy. That's the way that it should be, not just the person of who he was, but this is a family matter and the other people that lost their lives. And what's the, what's the takeaway for that? You listen, guys, and I know that you probably heard this, and I don't want to be redundant, but we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know. Like, all we're required to be responsible for is what we do with today. And yesterday is a different story. That's a whole different sermon that we can't do this morning. But today you're required to be responsible for what you do, think, and your actions that are connected to that. And then we see here the faith that's demonstrated. But we don't know what tomorrow has. So seek today to be in the best place before God for tomorrow. Amen? The girl arose and the report went into all the land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Now here are these two blind men. And let's look at take a look at these these. Uh, People that we've looked at so far, I'll tell you guys a, a secret. You know, I, what, I make mistakes sometimes. You guys know that, right? But I originally entitled this message Four Citizens because I didn't count the two blind men. But now we've covered how many people now with the two blind men? I'm giving you the answer so you can say it out loud. I mean, I don't know why you're all sleeping. Four, I can yell louder. I actually enjoy it. 
we've covered four people, and we look at those four people and how each one was different. The girl, uh, the, the, the ruler's daughter had passed away in a different location. The father goes to get Jesus and takes him to her, number one, right? The, women with, the woman with the flow of blood, she shouldn't have gone to the crowd to be able to touch Jesus because she wasn't even allowed to touch him. But here she leaves her house and she goes to seek out Jesus in the crowd where she's not supposed to be and she touches him. Here the blind men need to be led to some degree, one way or the other, at least pointed in the right direction. And they go in the direction yelling. What are they yelling? Son of David. And what are they resting on? That he is the son of David, which is a messianic reference that they are confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. And two, as they, as they shout, as they're getting closer, they don't know exactly where he is, but people have given them direction and, and they're crying out for help based on what? Based on his mercy. You guys know what mercy is because we talk about it all the time, right? Mercy is receiving something that you do not deserve. For what reason did they deserve to be healed? We're not going to argue the points, but they're seeking out the mercy of God through healing, uh, in, in, through the healing, through Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus. And he asks them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that nobody knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. I mean, how could you not, right? Two blind men who have been blind for their whole lives as far as we know. Uh, what do they say to people? What do you say to people when, when, when Jesus heals you of blindness? I once was blind, but now I see. Think about this. What was the first thing? Thing that they saw when Jesus healed them. <laughs> they saw him. And the same is true. There's a spiritual blindness over people. This is easily um, communicated, and, and especially like um, when you try to share the gospel with people, sometimes you can see that there's a spiritual blindness. And whenever somebody is healed of spiritual blindness, what is the first thing that they see? It's, it's always Jesus. The healing comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the direction of the Spirit is always to the Son, Jesus. And who's the Son pointing everybody to? Me. I'm Jesus. No, the Father. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. Jesus points to the Father because the whole reason that Jesus came to earth and that we have this book and this understanding of God's reconciliatory purpose for us is that we could have a relationship with him. So, of course, Jesus is going to point people to the Father, but the first thing that people see when spiritual blindness is lifted is Jesus himself, his person, who he is, the Messiah and as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, it, it was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now here we have our fifth guy. 
And we talked about how each person, each scenario was different, right? This person is uniquely different in that he could not seek Jesus out and he couldn't even ask Jesus anything, could he? Why? Because he was mute. He had people say, we know who you need to go to. We need, we know who you need to see. And they were willing to take him and bring him to the presence of Jesus to ask something of them that that man could not even ask for himself. This is the heart of intercessory prayer, what it looks like for us. Instead of coming to God like we so often do, me, 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 I, 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 my, 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 what I want, what I need, what I think is right, what I want my life to look like, coming to God, not in a, in, in a place of meditation to be in his presence just singularly, but we come to God in intercessory prayer for people that we know need him. Do you ever pray for other people? Do you know people and you think those people are in a, the worst place possible without Jesus? And you in prayer can surround them and can take them through that and carry them into the presence of Jesus. They don't know how to ask. They don't know what to say, but you can usher them in over and over and over again. And I've talked to people, I've experienced myself, people that have prayed for people for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. And then it's all the fulfillment of those prayers. That's powerful. And you'd ask that person, this one woman, she'd been praying for her husband for 30 years in a borderline abusive marriage for 30 years. And I asked her one day, I said, would you go back and see God answer those prayers at year 10 or 20 rather than 30? And she said, God's timing is perfect. And I learned so much through that time of intercessory prayer for my husband, and I wouldn't want anything other than what God had in store for us through this. There is a preparing of both people's hearts, not just one but also through her. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. We have it on the screen for you. The definition of faith is, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I would encourage you, if you want to know more about the definition of faith, after church, turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and read the first few verses of that. It goes on to talk about how uh, Faith is demonstrating something that you believe that you cannot see. That's what faith is. Just like Jesus asked some of these people, do you believe? It's your faith that has healed you. Something that they could not see happen because their trust wasn't in themselves or their circumstances, but in God's ability to address it. But Jesus said he casts out demons by the ruler of demons, and this is addressed by Jesus in a different gospel, he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I, I can't be for the enemy and then tearing down the enemy's kingdom. He was showing them exactly that I'm for my father's kingdom. I'm ushering in that kingdom and you're rejecting it. Verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now, if it says that he went around healing every sickness and disease among the people, then how was it that everybody wasn't healed? Because we know later 
Peter, James, John, some of the other disciples, they continue to go and heal people. We have to place the importance here in the context of what we're talking about, that there has to be a belief or faith coupled with who Jesus is. There were some people that very well could have seen Jesus pass by them on a daily basis when he was in Jerusalem, like the guy that was begging outside the temple, beautiful, when Peter was going to the temple to worship after the resurrection and after Jesus went and ascended with the Father. He, people say, and people believe, Bible scholars believe that he probably saw Jesus a number of times, but he wasn't healed. Well, did he want to be healed at that time? The important thing is that God still provided a way for him to receive healing. And we're not just talking about physical healing, and you and I both know very well what that means. We're not just talking about physical healing. We're talking about on a spiritual level. We're talking on a, on a wholeness level. How many of you need to be taken to the, to the next level of wholeness? That you still have things that are, that, are, that are deficiencies. You don't have to raise your hand. I know that you're out there, all of you people. Y'all are not whole. I'm just kidding. You probably are. But seeking to receive what, what God wants to do in your life through having a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, by by giving you abundant life. That's what he wants. He doesn't want death for you. He wants life for you. And then listen to this. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Point number one before we close, we see Jesus's heart of compassion. That's what it said, right? He looked out at the people and he had compassion on them. If you want something, a characteristic to, to put on your fridge or, or on your rearview mirror or any, meditate on Jesus's compassion for the people. And why did he have compassion for them? He said because they were like sheep that didn't have a shepherd. What did that mean? It mean these people were helpless and they had nobody to lead them. And all the leaders that they had, and all of the people that were elevated over them, nobody was leading them spiritually until God ushers in his kingdom and his son as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the great high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. His heart goes out to them. His passion and desire is to lead them like the sheep that need a shepherd that they are. He says, truly the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Many churches will take verses like these, and you know what we'll say? Us pastors up on the stage will be like, you guys need to get out there and start doing harvest work and stuff. You need to share the gospel with people. You need to bring people to church. You need to get your booties back in business, get Get down dirty, start working, start sharing the gospel with people because you're not, because you guys are dumb. That's what they say. I never said that before, I don't think, but that's what they say. But Jesus could have said that. He could have said, look at, the, look at the harvest. Look how much work there is to be done. What's wrong with you guys standing around here watching me heal people? Get out there and start harvesting. What does he say? He says, look at the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, harvest for laborers to be sent out. 
And when we as a church aren't focused so much on the work to be done, but that God's sufficiency to get it done, and God, we pray that we want to go out and, and we want to be part of reaping the harvest, but we understand that you have the absolute sovereign control over raising up people to send into the harvest for the sake of the harvest. When you start to pray for the harvest, rather than being a harvester, God starts to cultivate a heart of harvest in you. And who knows, maybe you could be that person that says, Lord, I was one of those people. Lord, raise up laborers to go into the harvest. And then the answer is, okay, Tim, I've, I've raised you up. Now go out into the harvest and keep praying to me for laborers for the harvest. That's the instruction. And I would encourage you in your prayer time, in, in, in light of this verse and, and what we've looked at this morning, I would, I would encourage you to take out a, a, a section of your time in prayer or your meditation and pray specifically to God for workers for the harvest, for harvesters. And just make it, make it a habit to be praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in the harvest because we need it, right? We need it. Pray. In closing, I have four points for you. Even though we have five people, you know, the two blind men were still blind together. But I have four points to wrap things up so that we can be on the same page. Number one I have for you, the ruler's daughter, there was imminent suffering. Was there not? She was dead, guys. <laughs> She was, and, and he could have said to Jesus, Jesus, where were you yesterday? My daughter's dead. And there was imminent, immediate, sorry. There was immediate suffering. That, that, that This could have been handled yesterday. It's getting handled today and needs to be handled as, as soon as possible. But there was immediate suffering that was being experienced. Let me tell you this morning that there's some of you here today that are, that are in it right now. You're experiencing death. You're experiencing immediate suffering and you want it to stop and you wish it was addressed yesterday. I want you to understand this morning that God is the God of seeing you in your place and addressing immediate suffering. He addresses it. He gets up and his disciples follow him and he goes. Make sure that we have the element of faith in play as well. Number two, the woman bleeding. She was suffering indefinitely. 12 years, tried everything that she could, spent all of her money, sought healing. And it was indefinite. And, and some of you here today, you may be suffering with something that you think could go on indefinitely. Can I tell you that God is the God that addresses indefinite suffering? And something that could be, that has been for a season, that has been for months or even years, is not beyond his control, not beyond his capacity to touch you, to heal you, and help you through it. We also quoted this verse, it's in your weakness that his strength is made perfect. So even though you might be in suffering, it gives uh, an opportunity to facilitate the power of God to be displayed because it's not you figuring it out. It's in your weakness. His strength is shown as perfect. Number three, the two blind men, they were suffering permanently. There was no cure for blindness. 
And some of you might think in the situations that you're in that your circumstance is permanent. It's never going to end. This is always how it's going to be. Can I tell you this morning also that God is the God who addresses permanent suffering? He addresses it. But make sure that when your faith is coupled with what you believe in God addressing that thing for you, what you think is permanent, when he addresses it, be like the two blind men and go tell it to the whole country. Don't be shy. Even if it's a process, be active in sharing with others that God has started something and I know that he's faithful to bring it to completion. Number four, the demon-possessed, silent suffering. This is a big one these days. I hope that you guys would, would understand and maybe agree with me. You know how many people are walking around? You know, there's probably somebody in here today that is suffering silently and is not willing to ask for help. Hey, can I encourage you that God is the God that meets you in the place of silent suffering? Even if somebody else has to get a hold of you, have you ever done this to somebody before? You have to get a hold of them and take them to the place of healing. Take them to the place of help because they won't or whatever or don't know how or can't ask for themselves. Again, for those of you who have struggled in the past with suffering or if it's been an issue for you, I want to encourage you to not only be bold to ask for help, but uh, to him, to ask for help, to cry out for that help, but also because of the position that you came from, be bold in praying for those that you know are suffering silently as well. Amen? And be bold to pray for them, to intercede for them, and, and to take them in your prayers, to take them to the presence of Jesus, but also... Maybe even physically take them to a place that they need to go. And sometimes we have to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for, for this strong word to us this morning. That your heart for us, we understand, we know your heart for us is wholeness. It's life and whatever part that we lack in that, whatever part of wholeness that we lack or whatever we struggle with, God. We pray that we would be able to take steps of faith, to demonstrate faith, to truly believe that you are who you say you are. And that through that faith in you and our petition to you, you would bring healing and wholeness. Because you are good, you are pure, you are kind, you are compassionate, you are holy. Lift up my, my brothers and sisters to you this morning, Father. I thank you for them. I thank you for the week that you have planned out for them. And we thank you like we spoke about, Father. We thank you for today, that you've given us today and that ultimately right now in this moment, that's what we're responsible for. We love you and we ask these things and pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We all pray, amen.